regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Datacast and today I have the pleasure to be on a call with Gordon Gong. Uh, as a data modeling fanatic, data warehouse architect and a multi-hypercrow startup veteran and team builder, Gordon has built his career on helping people to get their business questions. Over time, he has switched his focus from product technology to complete solution where people, process and technology all play a role. At Fitbit, he established the data warehousing team and as an early customer of Snowflake, use it to fuel petabyte scale analytics. Later on at both EasyCater and HubSpot, he rebuilt the data warehousing teams to focus on enabling analysis, not loading more data. A constantly focus on the customer and the problems has led him to realize that empathy is the most important trait a leader can have. So Gordon, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, James. Pleasure to be here. By way of introduction, I noticed that you studied psychology and philosophy at Rutgers University in the early 90s. So can you just talk a bit about your undergrad experience? Yeah, absolutely. So like so many other Asian kids growing up in the United States, I had a propensity for math and science, right? That's the direction that the culture sort of expected us to go to. And it's something that I really liked. And so when I first went to school, I actually went to uh, Rensselaer my freshman year, intending to be an electrical engineer. And frankly, I hated it. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the school, but I realized at some point that this, I was not a pure engineer, right? So I transferred to Rutgers. I'm from New Jersey. And then I spent a few years trying to figure out who I wanted to be when I grew up. I wandered all over the map, studied a lot of different things, wooden studies, English, physics, economics. And I kind of finished a psychology degree by accident. And I had a little bit of time left, so I finished a philosophy degree. And those two areas, while did not give me any direct vocational skills, did teach me how to think better, how to be more of myself and how to explore. Perfect. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing a bit about those early experience in your career. So after you finished college, in the first decade of your career, you worked for a variety of organizations within a database administrator capacity. First of all, like how did you get into database? And, uh, you know, throughout this first decade, what are some of the technical knowledge that you obtained? Frankly, I got very, very lucky. Right. Again, I mentioned I had a degree in psychology and philosophy. I don't think there's a lot of jobs for bachelor's level psychology philosophers. Right. So I ended up getting a job at a uh, GIS lab, Geographical Information Systems Lab, and very modest beginnings. I did a year worth of data entry. Right. I was, we were taking address records for a 911 database and literally just typing them into the database so that we could associate them with a GPS point. And GPS technology was very, very new then. Right. It was a great mission in some sense because we were trying to help, you know, people who are in distress have an ambulance get to their house, right? And if you're in a rural area where your address is route five, box four, that's not very helpful to the ambulance driver. So we were trying to tie that information together as a geographical information point. 
But then the way I got into databases was that this <laughs> that entry gets pretty repetitive, right? And there's a lot of repeating fields. And I wanted to go faster. So one day I kind of borrowed the DBA's password. And then I started teaching myself SQL, figured out how to update fields, you know, directly. And then my entry rate went up. And then it's just from there, it just, it just sort of snowballed. Another engineer recommended that I learn a little bit more about SQL. He thought that it was fading, but it might be useful in the future. Well, turns out it's been pretty useful for me. I see. Curious, like even your non-technical degree, like what are some of the biggest challenges of learning like these new technologies? There are practical challenges and there's emotional challenges, right? We all run through imposter syndrome. So when you have liberal arts degrees in a field that is expected to be technical, you can suffer under the delusion that you're not good enough or you don't know enough. And, I, and for a number of years, I had an intention to go back to school and go get that degree in a technical field. But at some point, I realized that the technology wasn't the thing that was holding me back. It was really under, you know, the, like how I was applying the technology. And that's where my education really sort of helped me uh, move forward. And so you mentioned that you traversed that world database within the first decade. So in the early 2000, you uh, start getting into consulting. In particular, you were part of a professional service team at AB Initial Software. So mm-hmm. uh, what attracted you to a consulting career? So by that point, I had already spent about 13 years in the professional world, and I had done internal IT roles and had joined a previous consulting firm for a software company. And was lucky enough to travel around the world, principal consultant, moved into a management role at some point, working with my colleagues, went through .com, watched that, that crash happen. And then, so I was thinking about what's the next phase of my career, and then Ab Initio came along. And Ab Initio was a really, really interesting company, very uh, self-funded great customer base, and just some of the smartest and most talented people you've ever met. But what was most interesting about that company is they had a maniacal focus on customer success and solving problems at a fundamental level. Two things that are really, really appealing to me, right? They would do anything to make a customer successful, and they refused to cut, make shortcut, take shortcuts in solving problems. From there, I really learned the power of solving things at a fundamental level and how that scales. But, you know, the reason I got into consulting at all was because uh, it seemed challenging. It seemed like something like, you know, how do we go in, learn a new environment, define a problem and be successful in a very short period of time? Just just specific to be initial, but what is the domain that you provided for your clients, the expertise? Database has been core to my career the, the entire time, right? So I trained up as a database administrator. I was originally an Oracle guy. I spent a lot of time learning how to tune Oracle for data warehouses, big queries and so on, allocating memory. And then from there, I got into the, actually building the databases. So the data modeling was a, critical, was a critical skill. I was an early follower of uh, sort of the Kimball methodologies and Bill Inman methodologies. But at some point, you internalize it and it becomes your own methodology, right? Mm-hmm. I can't help see the world in terms of dimensions and facts. I see everything <laughs> in terms of a data model. But then, so my core skill is really building solutions that help analysts derive insight and drive better decisions. Right? And so that might look like writing a SQL query to do some counted amounts against your sales transactions, or it might be supporting predictive models right? in, 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 you know, in, in this modern day. Thanks for sharing that. In the next seven years or so of your career, you um, get into director position. In particular, you led data warehousing initiatives at Smarter Travel Media, and then later on at ClickSquare. Yeah, maybe for the listeners who are not familiar with these small companies, can you just kind of briefly go through your time at this organization and maybe some of the, you know, concrete technical challenges associated with some of these initiatives of building data warehousing? Sure. And both of these were very, very interesting companies. You know, Smart Travel Media was one of the early companies that got into travel search, 
So, you know, they had a, they had a portal, very easy to use, particularly catered to non-technical people where you could enter in your criteria for finding a flight or a car or a hotel and then getting back results. And so the business was sort of really about attention arbitraging, but the customer value was helping people travel more easily. Mm-hmm. And so as you can imagine, behind that, there's a lot of data, right? And that's where I started learning about clicks and impressions and actions, right? And started thinking that through. Funny enough, it was an adjustment in learning how to be in a nine to five job because I had been a consultant for so many years while I was working all the time. And now it's like, huh, I don't have to go get on a plane, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. But, so, but this is, it was my first opportunity to build a department. You know, I was recruited by the founder of the company. They weren't doing any deliberate analytics. It was all organic and it was all spreadsheets. So mm-hmm. it was an opportunity to, you know, build from the bottom up. And I, so I started with the business requirements, right? Interviewed mm-hmm. all the department heads, asked them what their biggest pains were, where they were blocked, you know, what would make them really happy, right? In the short term and try to build like a concrete plan just moving forward from day one. No lofty visions. I'd already, at this point in my career, I'd already seen the two-year data warehousing projects. And I saw how those were absolute failures, right? Setting all your requirements up front, spending two years inside a room, basically, and building a database is not the way to build a data warehouse, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the way to build a data warehouse is to start with user needs, start to deliver as soon as possible, and then iterating upon that, you know, because you really don't know the requirements up front. You really Mm -hmm. don't. Right. And that's, uh, I think something else in my career I've learned is that I don't know that much, meaning I don't know that much about this situation. This situation can be new. Right. The questions are going to emerge as we deliver value. And then, so I think that's a really, really important lesson. But, you know, from a technical perspective, a smart travel, I got to delve into the SQL Server stack. I think it was a pretty good product. Right. You know, Microsoft doesn't always get credit for its products, but I think that it was it was pretty solid. You know, the early versions of SQL Server were a disaster, <laughs> but, but by this time, 2005 or so, it was actually pretty good. And the integration services was an early ETL tool that separated data flows and task flows, critical distinction, very, very useful. Analysis services was a cube product for doing multidimensional queries, also very useful. And then reporting services for delivering dashboards and reports. So there I got to, you know, configure my own SMP box, build rate arrays, you know, just go be a one-man shop, do the whole thing from top to bottom. And it really taught me, this is the point where I think I started really understanding how to not just build it at a warehouse, but support it in production and engage in continuous delivery. Because it's not enough to just populate a database and write some reports. Those reports have to be accurate, reliable, they have to be usable, right? They have to have the right data. So you start thinking about, well, how am I gonna test my data? So I, I built my own data quality system based around very simple binary tests. You know, do I have dupes? Do I have recent data? So on and so on. Start with the basics. I worked on going to users directly and onboarding them, making sure they were successful with their reports and dashboards, watching them use it, you know, seeing what conclusions they were coming, getting, coming up with the data. That was critical, absolutely critical, right? You know, imagine you're a chef at a restaurant. And if you never get to see your customers eat your food, you're always going to be guessing as to what they really need, right? So those are, I think those are pretty important lessons for me. After Smart Travel, I went to Click Squared, recruited by an old boss from an earlier company, we sort of got the team back together when we were building a multi-tenant campaign management platform. So this is 2012. It was a fully online platform. Not a lot of people were doing multi-tenant data warehouses at a time. There's some really interesting challenges there. And I was fortunate enough to get to work with Netiza, which is the database appliance. You know, at that, I think they originated from Marlboro, Massachusetts, which was a really, really interesting product. And so this is the first time I got to see Columnar databases. 
kind of see the advantages of, you know, not bringing back an entire row when you're trying to read a table, the kind mm-hmm. of compression you get with columns and dive to really deep into that. And there, and also, you know, wrestled with a problem of like, how do we deal with having multiple tenants, multiple clients in a single warehouse instance? We had to use one instance because the tech platforms were pretty expensive then, you know, but client A cannot see client B's data and circumstances. So how do you make sure this is bulletproof? Uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking that through, um, you know, and trying to build the simplest possible solutions as opposed to clever solutions. Yeah. So both those companies were a lot of fun and I learned a lot. Yeah, thanks for sharing those stories and the importance of iteration and being customer-centric. I guess just on your work at ClickSquare, maybe for people who are not familiar with the term multi-tenant data well, so you already um, kind of explained it, basically that you have multiple rows, multiple clients, right? And maybe you can just redefine it a little bit. And how, how is that like different from traditional data warehousing? And what are some of the implications when we're talking about like working with that level of database design? Yeah, so let me let's talk about this from a customer perspective, right? So, the kind of our customers were typically marketing departments that were trying to get a message out. You know, they're trying to reach out to prospects, get them to take an action. You know, sign up for at a website, buy products, and so on. So it might be, you know, in the old days it was uh, direct mail campaigns where you gave a piece of mail, right? Now it was email and other types of contacts. And so our core product was a campaign management platform where a marketing department who weren't necessarily very technical, could formulate a universe of people they want to contact, a value proposition they wanted to offer them, contact groups for control and so on, and then execute and deliver those messages. And behind all of that was a data warehouse, right? Because when you're talking about basically generating a list, right? You're creating a set. So a list of prospects, we're trying to turn them into customers, various events, clicks, impressions, and so on and so on. And lots of supplements and information such as demographics. And building something like this is pretty expensive. And so most companies uh, below a certain scale don't have the resources or time to build something like this. One, they don't have the technical skill. Two, it's, again, pretty expensive from a hardware perspective. And three, there's a loss of opportunity if they didn't get moving fast, right? Mm-hmm. They want to run campaigns now. They want to reach out to customers now. Um, so we are offering a you know, hosted application for get, creating these marketing campaigns. But for us to make the economics work, we had to use a shared platform. And that's where the multi-tenancy comes into play. You know, Netiza was a database appliance. So it was both hardware and software. So in order to get more capacity, you had to go buy a whole new refrigerator size server, literally refrigerator size, right? And it was hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So we couldn't stand one up for each client. We had to figure out a way, how do we share these resources across clients? You know, and... I did that by first building up the data model into both a common core and in customer extensions, right? So that we could accommodate any industry and any customer, you know, whether it be retail, marketing, or finance. And then, you know, figured out the permission hierarchies and such, what is a user? Kind of a funny thing to say, but really, until you really think about it, you don't necessarily know what a company is from a technical perspective, what a group is from a technical perspective, what's what's the exact definition of a user. We had to define these terms so that we could explicitly define the permissions and roles and what data they could access. Um, in some ways, it seems like common sense, but this wasn't as easy then. And uh, you know, and then how do you share physical resources? How do you share memory? How do you share compute? And so on and so on. Well, again, it was all a really interesting challenge. And then the way where Columnar came into play was previous to the Columnar world, relational databases were stored data in rows, right? And so when we think of a row, you think of a line and say in a spreadsheet, you have all these cells, 
and they're physically written to disk next to each other, right? Because originally databases, you wanted to bring back the entire row. You wanted all the information for that row, right? You wanted to know everything about that particular entity. So when I pull back a customer, I want to know their age, their birthday, their address, so on and so on and so on, right? But in the world of analytics, we frequently don't want detail. We want counts and amounts. What's the average age of all my customers? Well, in a relational database or a row-based database, you'd have to pull back every row for each customer just to get their birthday or their age, but you'd still get their address information and all the other stuff, even though you didn't need it. So what's the slowest thing in these systems? It's IO, right? Reading off a disk. The access to disk is the slowest possible thing. And here's where we were most inefficient. So Columnar databases come along and trying to solve the problem of, of only bringing back the data we need to answer these counts and amounts kind of questions, they were successful because they were very efficient against optimizing the slowest restructures. They found the constraint. What is holding back these queries? Access to disk. All right, how about we read less data off the disk? Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And that's where we saw 100x improvements. Yeah. You know, there were still, at the end of the day, there's still compute, there's still memory, there's still storage. It's just a how do we organize the data to optimize for a certain problem and how do we remove this good string? I see. And I suppose this is quite a novel design back in the early 2010. Yeah, I mean, I think it was novel from a practical perspective. It had been in academia for a while, you know, but it was really, yeah, from an implementation perspective, it was actually quite novel. And that's why Netiza came along at first and other products like that. I think Greenplum had an appliance, Oracle Exadata was an appliance. In order to get a solution like this, you had to buy both hardware and software together. You're essentially getting, you know, you're kind of getting like a skunk works product every time. It was both novel, it was cutting edge, you got great performance, but it was a steep learning curve. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for sharing those very concrete details of those differences. So after, you know, more than 70 years in these companies and you spent one year at Trivello as a consulting director and there you led uh, business intelligent implementation for some of the clients. So yeah, what did you learn during your time there? Well, that was a very interesting time for me too, right? So that was really when big data was really picking up a lot of speed, a lot of hype. And at ClickSquared, we had wound the company down. Frankly, we had failed from a financial perspective. You know, it, it just didn't work out. And for the first time in my life, you know, I found myself without a job, you know, which as, so as it turns out, you know, that's a good opportunity to do some soul searching. So I did four to six weeks of deep dive on Hadoop and various other technologies and then thought about what I wanted to do. And I decided I really wanted to be in a pure services company because I wanted to be, I wanted to be the situation where we absolutely had to focus on the customer. Mm-hmm. And so I found Cervello. They had a great reputation. They're local to Boston. Met a couple of people, really impressed by their sort of commitment to the customer and, you know, pure services firm. I was fortunate enough that he wanted me to come on as a director and, uh, you know, share some of the things I knew. You know, and then what I really learned there, again, was that what the culture is like when you are 100% focused on the customer, when you need to be 100% referenceable, where you, you really need to meet all their expectations. So you can't do this unless you understand the customer. You can't really be successful unless you really care about solving their problems. And in order to understand someone's problems, you need to understand them, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, one of my clients was a plumbing supply company. They had 200 locations, so they had a lot more data than you might expect. You know, we had, in order to solve their problems, you know, they wanted a better data warehousing solution, but they didn't actually know anything about data warehousing. So we had to teach them how to be customers, right? 
you know, teach them what's possible, teach them how to express their requirements and their needs. And again, in order to do that, you need empathy, you need to be a dive in. So learn a little bit about the retail world, learn a little bit about how the logistics works for moving plumbing supplies, learn about their existing solution, which is all in Excel, right? And you need all these things in order to improve it. Perfect. Out of curiosity, like I noticed that you know your title kind of changed from data warehousing to business intelligence. Personally, for you, like how do you distinguish between these two terms? I, I think this is an industry where it's actually always suffered with bad names, right? You know, data warehousing is a solution, right? It's not really a function. You know, this is intelligence. What is business intelligence? You know, it's it, that's so ambiguous. What is big data, right? You know, right? These things are so ambiguous, and I think that. We would all be better served if our titles reflected the outcomes we were trying to produce, as opposed to the activity we were doing. So my move from data warehousing to business intelligence was—it was more semantic. It was I was trying to emphasize, you know, that my product is trying is delivering insight. It's not building databases, right? You, I have to build the database in, in order to deliver that product. But unless I have an outcome, I don't have a product. I see. Yeah, focus on the business impact. You spent one year at Chevelo, and after that, you spent another three years as the director of business intelligence infrastructure at Fitbit. Now, there you have built the data analytics platform from the ground up, created a petabyte scale data warehouse, and developed a real-time Internet of Things data pipeline. Well, maybe a lot of people already know Fitbit, but probably you can give a just brief overview about the company, what attracted you about joining them, and. Uh, maybe elaborate a bit on some of these different projects during your time as a VI director. Sure thing. So Fitbit was super, super fun. It was incredibly uh, productive for me. They were very, very good to me. I think I delivered a lot of value for them. I will always be grateful that I had this experience. This is 2014. At that time, Fitbit had just become a household name, and this is my first exposure to being at a true hypergrowth startup. You know, I've been at fast-growing companies before, but this is a this is a household name. This is also my first exposure to working for a California company, and where most of the executive team was in California in a different time zone. So this is my first taste of sort of Silicon Valley culture, and it was really was that you know the startup culture to every degree you can imagine. Uh, we were growing so fast that at any given time, I estimated about 10% of the company didn't know where the bathrooms were, you know, because we were just doubling in size every year. So everyone you encountered was new at their job in this situation, and so we were coming into and everything was always happening a little bit too late because the growth was so fast. So I was recruited to build the data warehousing platform, which means I had to build a team too, and the and I was starting from the ground up. And so I had to learn about Internet of Things, right? You know, what does it mean to have 20 million connected devices? You know, how is this data currently stored? Oh, you know. Maybe it's not stored optimally. You know, I'm going to have some challenges getting it out there. So, I realized very, very early upfront that both we're going to need to be iterative here. We don't really know what all the challenges are ahead of time. We don't have a blueprint technical solution, but we're also going to have to build for scale, right? We're going to have to both be agile and also have a kind of waterfally approach at the same time. You know, be tactical and strategic. And I had come across Redshift in my previous role, and I realized that was probably the right kind of platform for us. You know, again, columnar database, ability to handle lots and lots of data at one time, ability to expand your resources over time, or have an opportunity to expand your resources over time. And so we started on Redshift, and we started with trying to answer basic questions around what are our customers doing. You know, so 
if you know the Fitbit product, right, it's a motion tracker account in the basic units, the steps, the dimensions of the steps are the time, the person, the device, and so on. And so we were just trying to answer the basic questions of like, how many steps did the average user take today? How many did it take last month? You know, how does it vary with the weather? How does it vary by geography and various cohorts? How does it vary by age? But at the core of the universe was steps. And again, it, it, it seems pretty simple, but again, we have 20 million devices. And at that time, the production databases were scattered across 128 MySQL servers, sharding uh, scheme. And just getting data out of those, you know, sharded my, MySQL instances was pretty interesting, they say. You know, so we had to figure out how to build, you know, parallel pipelines that could be dynamically deployed because we we're always adding new MySQL servers. We had to figure out how to monitor all these different pipelines so mm-hmm. that we lose one that you, you, know, you didn't have a hole in your data. I think that a lot of the tools that we see now, like Airflow wasn't available yet, you know, for instance, you know, a lot of the thinking around data ops, data ops wasn't a term, wasn't around yet. So we were definitely pioneers there. And of course we were doing it again in that hypergrowth startup situation where everything needed to be worked on, right? You know, just dealing with vendors, mm-hmm. getting contracts hammered out was slower than you wanted it to be because we, our attorneys were, now we're trying to buy, help us buy products that they had never seen before, right? Uh, how do we do a demification? We're still in customer data online. Um, yeah, so it was like, really, it was a, there's a lot to learn there. I see. Interesting. So like you mentioned, you start out with Redshift and then shipping out and, and kind of build platform using various vendors. I'm curious, what are some of the um, decision criteria that you have when it comes to that old question about like choosing or what commercial solution to buy or, you know, at what point do you think that you decided to build in-house, for example? What are some of those checklists that you have? It's all an educated guess, right? You know, I always go back to fundamentals. You have to start with what outcomes am I trying to drive? And then over what time frame and what resources can I bring to bear? And what's holding me back, right? So at Fitbit, we had the challenges of trying to understand our customer base, understand what they're doing so we can improve the product, understanding our potential prospects so we could add more customers, understanding the devices themselves so we could also improve the product in that direction, right? So given those questions, I understood that my users were marketing, the firmware engineers, it was the product groups, right? And then you kind of work backwards. You think through what, you know, what do these users need? What questions are they gonna to try to answer? How are they gonna formulate those questions? How are they going to interact with data? What data do I need? How do I process this data? And you know, I realized fairly early on that we were going to be constrained by hardware, right? Mm-hmm. That was going to be the primary constraint. We were struggling to run even basic queries. And Redshift could scale, but it wasn't going to scale in a cost-efficient manner. And as luck would have it, this little startup called Snowflake came along and got my attention when they started talking about uh, separating compute and storage. Right. And really fast forwarding, you know, worked with a great sales team over there, was immediately impressed with the product the first time I used it. It was very, very familiar. It was definitely a SQL database right from the get-go. Two of the founders were from Oracle and they had, they had developed products that I had used before. So there was an instant connection there. And they were great people. They were great people. And so we actually, I think as it turns out, I think we ended up being their biggest customer in 2016. You know, or so my friend in the sales department tells me, we put a petabyte of data in there, which even now seems kind of big, right? I had one table that had a trillion rows. <laughs> you know, it's, that's a lot of zeros. You know, here's the funny thing. I had to tell my team, I had to encourage my team to start using scientific notation 
when we're talking about the size of the databases, because really a typical person, looking at nine zeros versus 12 zeros, it's too easy to make a mistake. <laughs> you know? So sometimes we'd have estimates, like, you know, just whiteboarding an estimate, and we'd be off by a factor of a thousand. Like, it's like, oh, wait, 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 I dropped three zeros, right? So, you know, let's, let's do 10 to the power of nine, 10 to the power of 12, right? You know, just, that was the kind of scale you we were at. That was su super fun. But, you know, again, thinking about how do I evaluate vendors? You know, I look for vendors who are interested in stopping my pains, who are addressing the constraints that my customers have in, term, in, in terms of taking their actions, the pains I'm having in terms of serving my customers, uh, vendors who will partner with me. I will tell a vendor right up front that I'm looking for somebody you can partner with. When we come to an agreement, it'll probably be slightly painful for both of us, which means it's a good agreement. But this is a long-term relationship, right? I'm not interested in a short-term relationship because we're trying to build for the future. I think a lot of vendors appreciate that. You don't have to have an antagonistic relationship with them. Yes, there are conflicting needs, right? But you know, my father was in the restaurant business and he taught me to have respect for your vendors. Like he had respect for his vendors. He understood they had to make a living, but mm -hmm. he expected them to give him a good product. And I have that same feeling, right? When I work as a vendor, I expect you to treat me with respect to try to solve my problems and I will treat you with respect and recognize your problems. I think it's a better way to do business. It's a lot more fun. Yeah, for sure. Throughout the past couple of minutes, when you're talking about some unique challenges of working at Fitbit, it's a combination of both uh, software and hardware solution, right? There's some unique challenges working with, with edge devices when you have to start data and those type of products. Do you have any advice for, let's like, say, company uh, in that same situation, like they're building both a hardware and software solution? What are some of the first few things that they need to take care when it comes to data capturing and, and data collection and things like that? Yeah. I'm going to say it again, you know, go back to fundamentals, start with the the outcomes you want, the questions that you need to answer to drive those outcomes. And really, it's never too early to start on analytics and start measuring yourself. You know, real progress, real development, real improvement comes from introspection and recognizing where you are right now and where you want to go. So if I've got a small startup, um, let's say I have three engineers and I, uh, I have some kind of portal where I'm trying to get users to come take an activity, I need to know, hey, how many users do I have today? How many users do I have right now? How many users did I have yesterday? What's that growth curve look like? Are Saturdays busier than Fridays and so on and so on? If you don't know what your customers are doing and how they're using your product, how are you going to improve it? You know, how are you going to improve it from an empirical fashion? You know, you're just guessing. And that's, you're bringing hubris into it. You're projecting yourself into there. Being data-driven, funny enough, is actually very threatening. Because in order to be data-driven, you are, or data-influenced, you are making a commitment to being empirical right, to being logical and scientific, which means you don't get to guess as much. You don't get to express yourself, but you don't get to be the hero. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to take a bet on this product, you know, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to own it. And yes, but if you're influenced by data, if you're using the data, you don't get to be the hero as much. And for some people, that's actually very threatening, you know, and they don't realize it, you know, but I think that's, that's, that, that shows your commitment to the company and the product and the, and the mission, right? You know, to put your ego aside and rely on measurement. So my recommendation is to make this commitment, build this culture where you are constantly curious about your product, constantly curious about yourself and looking to improve. So you naturally go seek data. And then if you're trying to seek data, you, you're going to find that, hmm, we're not capturing all the events that we should be capturing, right? 
we're not recording state when we should be recording state. You know, are you, we have a, you know, we had a failure last night in a, on a web server, but we didn't capture it or it's locked up in a log and it's really hard to measure that, you know? And so you will naturally start making, smoothing out, making more efficient, that parts of the knowledge graph that are your constraints that are keeping your company from growing. And if you get your engineers to be users too, right? If they're asking the question of how is the stuff that I'm developing being used, that helps create that virtuous cycle. And they start thinking about like, oh, now I understand why I need to build telemetry into my system. You know, why I need to have, you know, I need to be tossing out statistics on, you know, in every aspect of my product so that we can improve it. You know, if you can't see what's happening, it's going to be really, really hard to improve. My advice here is start small, think about the business problems. You know, what was one question you want to answer? And then try to answer that question and see what the constraints are. Don't launch yourself into a one-year project to build a big data solution, right? You, you just don't know what you need yet. I see. Just one quick on a note about your time at Fitbit. Because you build a platform to grow up, you do a lot of recruiting and hiring, right? And management. And in particular, you, you manage three teams, data engineering, data warehousing, and data analytics. From an organizational part of view, like how did these three functions work together? How do they collaborate? How do you set up teamworks in, uh, in a way that ensure you know, effective collaboration? Yeah, a lot of thought went into this. As you mentioned, I had three teams at a time. And, like, and you had the question of like, how do you get these teams to work together, right? If you have studied the Agile world, you're familiar with the difference between feature teams and component teams, right? F- feature teams go end to end on, on a product. They are made up of heterogeneous members, but they don't really necessarily specialize. Whereas component teams are made up of members who are, have a similar skill set, maybe difference in seniority, who get really, really good at one thing. So for example, if I would use my town, for example, you might think of the fire department as a component team, right? They're really good at fighting fires. If I think of the police department as a component team, but there are solutions that need both in order to really solve the problem. There are problems when you need both in order to produce an effective solution, right? So the same thing is true in the, in the analytics world. I have these three teams. If they're highly specialized, I'm gonna have a problem with communication, I'm going to have a problems with queuing where people are waiting for each other, right? And I'm going to have a problem with distance between the engineers and the business problem. Because when you're a component team and you have two or three other component teams between you and the business problem, that visibility gets really, really thin, right? I sort of turned it horizontal. I did focus on the whole feature team aspect. And I thought about like, how do I take multiple people of different skill sets, different communication styles, different time zones, and put them into a team, get them to work together, so that we could help solve our users' problem. And I realized that, you know, you have to make things simple. You know, if I'm building a team to support marketing, well, you know, then, then we need to focus on just marketing, right? Don't have them also solve stuff for HR, solve stuff for products, solve stuff for firmware, because they're not developing the subject matter expertise. They're not developing the customer relationships they need to be. They absolutely need to be effective here. So give these teams stability in terms of a vision and their mission. Give them reasonable deadlines so they can focus on like, you know, like trying to move the needle forward. How do we move the ball forward? Not how do we hit this arbitrary deadline in a project plan? And ironically, I think when you don't focus on arbitrary deadlines, you actually go faster. And then, so there's a lot of thought here around about like, uh, you know, training scrum masters and, you know, removing impediments in a team. What does product management look like? How do I capture all the user's needs? How do I look for efficiency between users? How do I get, you know, again, how do I get the engineers closer to the users. And one interesting idea we had at a time is because I didn't have a product management team, I created this notion of fractional product managers where I had engineers 
you know, and it was, it was a volunteer situation, but most of them stepped up saying, hey, I need someone to go understand this department's needs. I need one person to become the, sort of the expert in their needs to be their advocate here. You know, who wants to go help security? Who wants to go help marketing? Who wants to go help HR? A lot of people shot hands up. And I think for those people who engaged with users to try to solve the problems, their careers benefited from it. You know, mm-hmm. in the context of why they were doing what they were doing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that multidisciplinary vibe really ensure good collaboration between these various functions. You spent three years at Fitbit. And then after that, spent another year, you know, this one working at Easy Cater as a director of data engineering. And in particular, you made substantial improvement to the Data Wow's platform. So what was your product accomplishment there? In some ways, Easy Cater was another opportunity to iterate, right? So I had done the big scale thing, right? I'd done petabytes of data. Easy Cater didn't have petabytes, right? Our transactions were catering orders. So they're much more, they're bigger, they're less voluminous, but we still had some of the same problems, right? How do we get users, you know, answers so they can take effective actions? How do we bring engineers closer to the business problem? When I came in, they had an existing warehouse that works pretty well. You know, but it was the first time I'd ever seen a warehouse where that was entirely uh, populated with Ruby code. And so that was interesting. And, uh, but it, was, it worked at the time. But looking at the constraints, I realized that users weren't you know, consistently getting reports first thing in the morning. They were getting them around, sometimes they get them around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, maybe 1 p.m. if a load had to re- restart it. You get asked the question, well, why aren't they getting data consistently? It's like, oh, the load is taking four hours. <laughs> well, why is the load taking four hours? Oh, we're rebuilding the entire warehouse every day, right? You have to have respect for what people have built. Why did the engineers build in this fashion? Because it was the best they could do at the time. They weren't experienced in warehousing. They were excellent engineers, but this is not a problem they had solved before. So, and I was coming along to basically iterate on their work. So, right, they chose the method of rebuilding an entire warehouse every day because that was effective and it solved the problem there and it moved the ball forward. And it gave me the opportunity to move the ball forward again. We migrated from Redshift to Snowflake. We replaced some of that code. We made it more granular. We made pipelines parallel and independent. And then we took the loads from, you know, four hours a day down to a few minutes. And so that sounds like bragging rights, but again, the the technical achievement there is not important. What's important is that now users we're getting the data on time. They were getting the reports on time. And if something happened and something always happens, right? You have to prepare for failure. We could respond and fix it very quickly. You didn't have to wait another four hours to reports. So measure your success by the impact you have on your users. For sure. Thanks for elaborating on that point once again. And also like at EasyCater, you also did some recruitment for like data engineers, right? What are some of the skill set that you look for in excellent data engineers. Let's think about the mission in different components. You know, we use the terms data engineers, analytics engineers, you know, data analysts and so on. So what is a data engineer? These days, my definition is a little bit narrower then, but I mostly think of a data engineer's job is to get data into the database, right? So let's assume we are using a database as opposed to, you know, like a serverless system or so on, right? We're still gathering the data, we're preparing it and we're doing analysis. So the data engineer gathers the data. Right? That's their real, that's their function. And in order to do that, they need to be able to talk to a variety of different upstream sources, you know, whether it be hitting an API or pulling from a relational database, right? Or pulling from, you know, setting up a webhook of some kind. So they need to understand that. They need to have those kind of programming skills, you know, more traditional software engineering than a SQL engineer would, right? They also need to be excellent engineers from the percent sense of being professional. They have to have that culture of being able to 
create PRs and commits and do code review, which I have to admit in the database world for a long time, that was missing, right? We weren't professionals about it because a lot of the people practicing in the database field were not traditional software engineers. So they lacked that training, right? More like enthusiastic amateurs, right? But for data engineering, you need to build a solution that is reliable and consistent and is maintainable, right? And you need that level of professionalism. But they also need to think about it's not regular software engineering in some sense, because the big difference is the data, right? So not only do you have to build these pipelines, you have to maintain them. I wanted people who could think through and understand what it's like to build a product they can maintain. You know, it's like, hey, we need to make sure these pipelines are running all the time and we need to know when they go down. How are we going to do that? What's, what are your notions? One of the ways I interview sometimes is to just take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, mm-hmm. put ideas on one side, ability to implement on the other side. I want to know what are your ideas? What are your thoughts? What do you think are the needs in this area? Okay, now, can you implement those? Have you implemented before? You know, you know, what's your ability to execute, right? And so I don't do the trivia hunt through your resume, right? That's a, those are facts. We can look those up. I don't need to tr- try to trick you on like, oh, did you really use SQL Server 2008? Or, you know, you know how many cores did a NetEase model whatever have, right? You no, know, I, what I want to understand is like, what I want to know is what do you understand about this, you know, and what's your ability to execute? Thanks for sharing those key takeaways. In the, the next years or so, you got back into consulting. In particular, you uh, advise initiatives in analytics engineering for Zipcar and data warehousing for edX. Can you uh, briefly walk through these two consulting roles? So I was getting back into being independent. I wanted to have a little bit more flexibility. I wanted to explore what it was like being my, uh, my own boss. So these two engagements were diametrically opposed. One was very tactical, one was very strategic. Let's start with edX. edX is a very interesting company to me. They are, you know, a big player online education space. They're affiliated with Harvard and MIT. They're also only a, only a mile from my house or down the street. And I happen to have some good friends there. And, you know, it turns out they needed advice and help about how to pick a new data stack. And in addition to just understanding the technology, they needed some advice in terms of how to evaluate the technology. So it goes back to the fundamentals, like what problems you're trying to solve, who are your users, what's their, what's their skill set, what's the company goals for over the next year, two years, or three years. And so I worked with them from a strategic perspective to evaluate different vendors for their capability to solve those problems in their context. You know, we looked at BigQuery, we looked at Snowflake, the Azure Data Warehouse is a little bit in the picture, but not really, right? And I had a a lot of experience with Snowflake, of course, but I tried to be impartial here saying, let's, let's try to find the right solution for you. And then they did end up going with Snowflake. But I advised them on both how to, how to do the POC, how to you know, compare vendors, how to calculate the economics around this, how to formulate their data teams, and so on and so on. Really, really fun, great people, and, and, uh, and I still stay in contact with them now. Zipcar had a different problem, right? Zipcar had an existing platform. They had existing users and existing analytics. But their problem was really delivery speed and quality of the product. Not that people were doing bad work, but their development and requirement cycle was too big. You know, users give them a requirement. Engineers might take a couple of weeks to develop that solution because they had to go back to the source systems and get the data and so on and so on, um, model database, what have you. And then it turns out the requirements weren't quite right. You know, mm-hmm. so you got to iterate again. So that feedback loop was too big. There, I did do some strategic consulting in terms of what should the platform look like, fill a couple of holes, but really there I focused on helping them execute better. And that's where I sort of came up with the notion of 
the analytics engineering squad. At that time, you know, analytics engineering was uh, starting to become a popular term already. Michael Kofiminski had uh, written his excellent blog post about that. And I was coming up to the notion of the analytics engineering squad. A good analyst or good, you know, a really, really good analyst has subject matter expertise. They have technical abilities to deal with tools. They have mathematical statistical abilities, right? So they can know what's significant. They have communication skills. To, get, to find someone who's excellent in all four of those areas, there's about five of those people on the entire planet, right? That's kind of impossible. And it's, and it's a bit of an American thing, but we're always looking for heroes. What's a lot more possible is to build one of these feature teams we talked about, like I had back at Fitbit. In this case, I'm calling it an analytics engineering squad where let's put all the skills necessary to go end to end on an insight problem, on an insight deficit, so that we can have a really, really fast loop. So that includes having someone who could be the user, who could think like the user, right? You know, writing a report and trying to answer your question. Someone who can model a, da a database, who can write SQL, who can do transforms there. Someone who can go get the data, so a data, data engineer. And I led a small, very, very small team to basically first prove to ourselves that we could be excellent, that we could go really, really fast. You know, where we were doing daily standups and we were actually delivering on a daily basis to users, right? Iterating reports and, and insight on a daily basis, right? That was the intent to try to deliver something every day, look for the constraints and, you know, and then tuned our standup methodology, tuned our, how we wrote user stories, tuned the communication with the team. And we were, you know, we were successful, right? You know, we were able to deliver things in a few weeks that previously had taken months. And it was really all about process, right? It wasn't, we didn't use any new technology. It wasn't like I went and got a new ETL tool. It was about improving the communication flow between the users and the engineers. It seems like some of the strategy consulting work you did for both of them kind of reflect on some of your previous experience, right? Like, you know, both from building something from zero to one, as in a K4Edx based on your work at Fitbit and sort of optimizing for scalability and, and solution from one to 10 in Zipcast, similar from your experience at EasyCater. Most recently, you were VP of Business Intelligence at HubSpot. Can you just give a brief overview about the company and uh, some of your core contribution during your time there? Yeah, and HubSpot is a, you know, it's, it's a Boston company, right? It's a, one of our big success stories. Been around for maybe 13 years now, has experienced outstanding growth all along. And like many companies, in that space, you know, they grew organically and some systems were not as good as they needed to be, right? So HubSpot provides a marketing and services platform for small businesses. It's got a great mission because they're trying to help mom and pop shops and other small businesses serve their customers better. And HubSpot brings a tremendous customer focus. They also have a tremendous corporate culture, really embrace DEI and helping people be authentic. The demographic of the employee base reflects that as well. That was a great thing to be part of. My explicit mission there was recruited by the CIO at the time to basically rebuild their business intelligence team. And that team had labored under being under-resourced and underfunded for a number of years, partly because they didn't have an advocate for them. You know, so I was supposed to be both that advocate and also the architect of the new solution. So when I came in, I won't go into explicit numbers, but I found that uh, I thought the team was about maybe 15% the size it should be, you know, relative to the number of users we were trying to serve. And then we had an existing solution that had been in place for a while, Snowflake and Looker, and they had developed a lot of content. Here's one number I'll throw out. They had 30,000 reports when I joined, of which 15,000 of them were broken, right? That's not because people were doing a bad job. In some ways, that was because people were doing too good of a job, 
right? You know, the, the engineers had created a content platform for the analysts, right? You could think of analytics platform as sort of a content platform where analysts are trying to find, use, and create content. They're trying to create uh, reports and dashboards, you know, to generate insight. And they had created a platform that was really, really easy. They had developed a platform that was really, really easy to create content, but it wasn't really easy to manage it. You know, they hadn't taken it to the next stage of maturity. So that was my immediate goal was like, okay, put out the fires in the existing solution so that it can, you know, we can get some return on our initial investment and then build to the next scale. You know, going forward, I realized to build to the next scale, we're going to have to do a lot of hiring. We're going to have to build a team. We're going to have to change the focus of the team from being just technology to really, again, trying to solve the needs of the users, right? And which means understanding who the users were. Um, giving them a voice. So I implemented product management so that we'd have a real voice of the customer. I brought in a technical lead, a colleague who had seen these solutions before. And then we also kind of pioneered this notion of, you know, I, I like clever names sometimes. So we came up with this notion of ACES. And the ACE was an analytics collaboration engineer, just really an analytics engineer. But the, the little twist of it on it was that the ACES, their job was to go explicitly enable the analysts. You know, work with it. And your customer is the analyst. Where's the strength? You know, are they struggling with tools? Are they struggling with data? Are they struggling with data quality? And to build the solutions to solve for them. And then that group was, uh, you know, random, a little bit like a, like a consulting firm, right? Here's a mission, you know, go make it better. Right? And uh, so that was super fun, right? And then we, you know, we got into notions around like, how do you support the analyst community? What kind of enablement do you need to do for the analyst community? How do you get the analysts to work together? How do you develop an insight economy where people are sharing insight between the departments? You know, if finance develops a definition for lifetime value, HR and product and marketing should not develop their own definitions of lifetime value. That's inefficient and that's going to lead to bad decisions. Instead, you want to find a way for finance, who are the experts in this area, to develop that metric and then share it so other people can use it. Right? And so we worked on that insight economy. Thanks for sharing those concrete examples and experience and things that you have initiated at HubSpot. Now I want to kind of like look into some of the bigger lessons that you learned throughout your career. I mean, you already kind of laid out a lot of those throughout the conversation, but now maybe we can go a little bit more in depth in some of them. I read this article that you contributed to, I think last year, from DBT, where you coined the term data hierarchy of needs. More specifically, you brought up the five pillars for any data analytics platform that include data security, data quality, system reliability, user experience, and uh, data coverage. Maybe can you um, just uh, unpack these pillars and uh, define you know, maybe some of their importance for the listeners? Yeah, I came up with this uh, notion, and I, I won't claim the terms original. I may have read it someplace else, right? All ideas are iterations. But I came up with this notion for me to better explain to my customers how to bring up the analyst platform through a maturity curve, right? And in order to define maturity, we needed to find the fundamentals of dimensions here. And so this is heavily influenced by Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where you have a pyramid and at the bottom of the pyramid are those foundational things that solve immediate needs. And they have to be resolved before you can move up. So for instance, you know, it's very hard for someone to improve their photography skill if they're cold and hungry, right? So you need to find a way to be warm. You need to find a way to find food before you can move on to those higher level needs. Well, similarly, if we are trying to build predictive models or we're trying to build a mature dashboard to drive our HR efforts, or we're trying to you know, do this report, what are the foundational things that enable those reports? You know, 
how do I make sure that is there at the right time? How do we make sure that it's safe to use, right? So the hierarchy needs basically starts with those resolving the most immediate threats and then moves on to the uh, higher level needs, right? So I think that any company really, you know, and you could quibble over the order, but I think any company when working with data, their first requirement should be protecting their customers, right? When you are trying to predict your customer's behavior or you're trying to measure how they're using your product, essentially you are generating information about them that could be abused. So security, I think has to be your first priority. And by protecting your customers, you protect yourself, right? So that's number one. Number two is data quality, right? How do I keep noise out of the signal? How do I protect myself against bad decisions? If I am trying to figure out where to invest $5 million in terms of a marketing campaign, and I base that investment on bad data, you know, that could be a disaster, right? And, and it turns out, I think that real sustained growth of a company, real velocity, it comes from avoiding disasters as much as it does from going a little bit faster. You know, let's take a metaphor of trying to drive across the country. You know, you could try to drive really fast to get across the country, but you're going to lose a ton of time if you go off the road, if you have an accident, if you get lost, right? You're better off driving a little bit slower so you can avoid those disasters. Well, data quality is an investment in terms of risk mitigation, right? So we talked about security, we're protecting our customers. Data quality, we are protecting ourselves, right? We're protecting our users, we're our own community. We're protecting ourselves from bad decisions that come from having you know, noise in our signal. You know, that's the second pillar. I try to drive my teams to always think about this throughout the development cycle. And so we, we lean into test-driven development and writing tests up front and so on so that we can be testing quality right from the beginning. The third thing is reliability. Reliability, you know, any good solution has to be dependable. So this is sort of like nuts and bolts kind of stuff. It's data ops, it's DevOps, but making sure defining SLAs, understanding what your users' needs are again, not having arbitrary SLAs, but rather defining them, right? There's a report, when does data need to be available? Oh, it needs to be available by 9 a.m. every day. Okay, but how about the other time zones? Oh, oh, maybe it needs to be available at 7 a.m. every day or 6 a.m. every day, right? And uh, so we need to understand our users' needs. We wanna define measurable goals and we wanna see how well we're doing in terms of our liability perspective. Is the solution available when it's needed? You know, moving on from there, uh, usability. I believe that engaging in analytics is actually a creative enterprise. It's about asking questions and using the answers to those questions to either take an action or ask a better question, right? What was my revenue last month? That tells me something, but it doesn't tell me that much. But once I answer that question, I can answer the next question. I could ask the next question. What was my revenue last year? Or how did last month compare to a year ago, right? These are creative things. And whenever you're engaged in a creative endeavor, if you're struggling with your tools, creativity is constrained. You know, if you're doing photography and you're shooting with manual focus and you're not familiar with manual focus, it's really going to constrain your creativity. If you're cooking and your knives are dull or if you're, you know, your stove is not reliable, again, it's going to constrain your creativity. This, the same is true of analytics. You know, if the analysts are struggling with formulating queries or with performance or with finding objects, right? Do we have a data dictionary? Do we have a correct data dictionary? that will impact a user experience. And they're not gonna be able to come up with insightful questions. They're gonna be like trying to do that manual focus. So user experience is really, really important, right? And then finally, the last thing is data coverage. Do we have the information that describes the events we're trying to understand? And I put this last because if you don't resolve the first four, there's kind of no point in giving people data, right? 
If you give them data, but your customers are not protected and you're exposing their personal information on the web, should never have happened. Shouldn't do that, right? You know, if they can't formulate queries that are safe to use and come up with reasonable insight, again, you're actually encouraging bad decisions. And then the other thing is really, it's just the other thing, the other reason I put data coverage at the end is to keep the scale and scope under control, right? Don't go build a five petabyte data warehouse and then, and then turn it over to your users, right? That old saying about, if you build it, they will come, all wrong. <laughs> it's just totally, totally wrong, right? Just the wrong way to do things. Constrain your scope, target your most valuable questions to answer and work backwards from there. Yeah, thanks for really being detailed and unpacking some of those pillars. You've gone back to independent consulting since last summer. And uh, in particular, you talk about your decision to focus on clients that have social impact in areas such as education, energy, healthcare, and civic engagement. In your opinion, what are some of the current opportunities for driving better social outcomes and empowering democracy through data? Yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many areas we can make an impact. Again, I think we have a, you know, we have a technology-focused culture and society where we are constantly trying to go faster and climb higher, right? And I think sometimes we forget, frequently we forget the base. You know, how do we drive our solutions sideways? You know, so it's true that, you know, democracy about making a choice in terms of choosing our leadership and choosing our form of government. But if you can't make, if you don't have the data, if you don't have the information to make an informed choice, you really don't have democracy, right? And when you're fed bad information, right? And when you're fed false facts or you come to false conclusions, again, you don't really have democracy. You know, I don't want to get on too much of a soapbox, but Immanuel Kant talks about how, you know, lying to somebody is actually an act of violence, right? Because by lying to them, you're getting them to take an action that's contrary to the one they would have taken if they had all the information. You're forcing them down a different path. Let's not lie to ourselves. You know, how can we use data to improve society or in, and drive democracy? Well, you know, help me understand my government at a local level, right? What parts of the town, which streets are languishing the longest before getting a repair? You know, is this socially equitable? Should we be focusing resources over there? You know, what is the homeless rate in my, in my town? right? You know, how many homeless children do we have, right? These are things that are really important that we all talk about caring about, but until you have the information, until you can really understand the problem, it's very hard to engage in that empathy, right? And then I think by making information more accessible, by driving insight in these social areas, we can help people understand each other better, drive the empathy, and improve the quality of life for everyone. That sounds idealistic in some sense, but it's really actually very pragmatic, right? You know, think about the outcomes you want, Think about the things that matter to you. You know, think about what's constraining you and then try to find the answers so you can take better actions. Um, so we can improve our schools, of course. We can improve how we're, again, maintaining our streets. We can do so many things, so many things. And so I would like to see, and we, we are starting to see this. I would like to see more effort in enabling not just data scientists and not just experienced analysts, but the average person to ask questions about things that matter to them. And how we do that, you know, that's still to be determined, but I don't think we're going to solve that problem until we make, make it the objective to help the average person, the typical person make better decisions in their lives. Yeah, I see. So I try to democratizing accessibility via both, I guess, education and, and maybe tooling, if there's some ways to do that. Yeah, absolutely. You also have written about key values that managers should internalize when considering their employees, things like empathy, optimism, and honesty. What are some of the key criteria that enable healthy team dynamics 
from your hands-on experience building data teams. Right. Well, as you just said, you listed empathy, honesty, and optimism. I think these are the three most important traits for a manager. And I definitely embrace the servant leadership role. You know, I start with a mission of like, how do I help my employees be happy and successful in their mission, right? And I can't do that without empathy, honesty, and optimism. You know, empathy, I need to care about them. I need to care about their career. I need to understand them. I need to be able to understand what their challenges and their perspectives. Honestly, I, I gotta be able to give honest feedback, right? You know, I, I need to be able to help to get them the information they need to improve their career, to improve their performance. And then optimism, well, you have to believe people can do better, right? If they're falling short of a goal, or even if they are meeting the goals, but they just want to improve, you have to believe they can do better, right? If you're cynical about your own employees, you're going to have a really hard time helping them. So I think these three traits are really critical for a manager. I think if you really embrace them, they'll actually help drive practical solutions. And, but more than just the managers, I think the teams need to have empathy, honesty, and optimism for each other and for their customers, right? You know, I mean, clearly cooperative teams are more performant than non-cooperative teams. This is just obvious, right? But we don't always put the emphasis there and we don't, or we just tell teams to be, be cooperative, right? Well, being cooperative comes from being empathic, right? Mm -hmm. From understanding each other. Does the data engineer understand what's blocking the analytics engineer? Does the analytics engineer understand what the analyst is struggling with? So there's no magic formula here. It's really about, you know, seeing each other, right? Mm -hmm. And then being honest your needs and then trying to, you know, leaving and committing to doing better. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I guess like fostering that culture that can enable some of these qualities really need to be intentional by the design of team, right? I think going back to one of your points earlier, you mentioned that role I see is really about like, you know, someone who being empathetic and with the end users, intentional users, I said that really one way to foster some of these qualities. Absolutely. You are an expert at implementing, configuring and managing Snowflake all the way from, I guess, during your time at Fitbit, I think throughout our conversation, you know, you, you have these various companies adopt Snowflake in their um, data warehousing initiatives. For the people who are not super familiar with Snowflake, can you, you unpack some of the central features and benefit of this platform? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, Snowflake is a database, right? If you know SQL, you can use Snowflake. This is fantastic. This is a familiar concept. This is a familiar paradigm for most people who are in that world. You can use all your favorite AI tools, you can work the way you're used to working. So first and foremost, Snowflake is a SQL database, right? Secondly, Snowflake allows you to, it scales according to your constraints. So we mentioned a little bit earlier that they separate compute and storage, right? Those two things can scale independently within Snowflake. If I need more storage, it scales on demand, takes advantage of block storage and whatever, whichever cloud provider you're implementing on top of, whether it be AWS or Google or Azure. And there's no need to go, you know, it's not 1990, it's not 1995 where I need to go configure a new RAID array. And it's not 2014 where I need to go set up a new Redshift cluster. It's just, hey, you know, I need more storage. Okay, I don't have to worry about these predefined limits up front. Similarly, with compute, you know, when I have, you know, the demand for compute cycles through the day and through the year and through the, you know, depending on what you're trying to do, right? Clearly, your users are going to be more active at 9 a.m. in the morning than they will be at midnight. So shouldn't, I, shouldn't a good solution have more compute at that time? And, so Snow, and Snowflake can scale dynamically in terms of compute. And you, so you pay for utilization. And that's a kind of a great thing, right? Because I don't have to pre-buy a huge amount of capacity anticipating what my users might be doing a year from now. 
or I don't have to artificially constrain my users because I'm afraid of overbuying. So as a manager who has a budget and, and trying to get ROI from that budget, you know, Snowflake gives me a lot of flexibility to be both economical in the short term, but also scale the needs of my users. Um, and that's sort of the heart of the product, right? It's a SQL database that is very flexible and can scale with a problem. Now, how does it do this? Well, you know, from the compute perspective, Snowflake is really, really good at parallelizing queries, right? I think Dr. Stonebreaker calls these like stupidly parallel problems, right? But, you know, Snowflake's performance will generally scale linearly with the size of the data. If you double the size of a large table, the query will take twice as long to run. If you double the amount of compute available, that query will now it'll take 50% as much time to run. And because it scales linearly, you have this interesting situation that you don't normally get. You can get things for free. And what do I mean by that? Well, if I have a query that runs for 10 minutes, which no query should run for 10 minutes, that's just, that's just wrong. But you know, let's say I have a query that runs for 10 minutes. If I give the query 10 times more compute, it will run in one minute in Snowflake for the same cost, right? So I just got back those nine minutes of time, you know, essentially for free, right? Snowflake bills by the second. So I'm only being billed for utilization. This is a really different way of thinking, right? Because we're used to, as engineers, as resource managers, we're used to being parsimonious and frugal with our resources, you know, and we're used to like being careful about not hogging all the resources on a server so that slowing down everyone else. Well, here I can bring more resources to bear to solve the problem that I have right now, essentially for free. Yeah. Now, this doesn't mean you should just give, you should just let your engineers and your users run any query they want because lacking constraints, there could be a problem with quality, right? The quality of their efforts, they may become inefficient and you could drop a budget getting bill. But just understand you have these tools now at your fingertips. And so as an architect, as a manager, you can be flexible in your solution in terms of responding to business needs. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that because it really helped me serve my users better. Thanks for kind of sharing some of those great thoughts, raw like opinions as a user of the company. And we all know that, you know, Snowflake, IPO last year and one of the best value in tech. So I think, you know, both from that angle and introducing that novel way of thinking that helps your users, especially on the core success of their product, right? You know, as a data warehousing and BI kick, what is your verdict for the ETL tooling landscape in the next few years? Well, I think that we're going to go horizontal more, right? So what I mean by that is that we still have an unfortunate tendency to think in terms of these components, right? Where we have something that just loads the warehouse and then we have something that transforms the warehouse and then we have something that creates reports. These things are all necessary, but I think that we are understanding these problems well enough, we're solving these problems well enough that we can go to a higher level of abstraction. Remember the objective here is to deliver insight that drives actions. You can think of it as a manufacturing process, as a pipeline, or like a factory, right? Which we wanna bring engineering across the spectrum here. And in order to do that, we need tools that can talk to each other, that can do handoffs with each other, we need common language. I think we're gonna see more and more uh, lean in on the analytics data ops side. Mm-hmm. We're gonna see more analytics engineering. We might see what I'm starting to call like decision ops or insight ops, right? Again, what is the constraint on delivering this insight? What's holding us back? And so, you know, bringing data into a warehouse, getting it from different sources, I think that's gonna very, very much become commoditized. A few years ago, vendors would differentiate themselves by the size, number of connectors they have. They still differentiate themselves by the number of connectors they have, but that's not a lasting difference. I think that just getting data into the warehouse is gonna become commoditized. 
ETL vendors need to do, or data, really data integration vendors, what they really need to do is not just bring data into a warehouse or move data from one place to another, but make that data better known, make it understandable, build an inventory of it. So extend the map, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Don't just go off in the wilderness and bring back resources, you know, map out the terrain, create the topography, give us a stable foundation to build more. And get really getting from moving from just thinking about data sets and ETL pipelines and so on, and start really having mature conversations about the enterprise knowledge graph they have in companies. And that starts with ETL. That starts with understanding the basic data sets. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so sharing that metaphor is really make it very easy, understandable. So finally, how would you just describe the data community in Boston? It's dynamic. It's really interesting. You know, all the cities have different flavors in terms of what industries they tackle. You know, Boston, we see a lot of marketing tech. We see a lot of healthcare. We see a lot of finance. I, the areas I'm particularly most interested in is really the healthcare area, a lot of biotechs and so on. And so we are pushing, Boston, I think maybe more so than some other companies are pushing to those scientific areas. And so we're, we are getting a lot of practitioners, a lot of users who are highly technical, who are highly skilled in certain areas, but don't necessarily understand SQL, standard mm-hmm. analytics, right? So it's back to the old problem of like, you know, figuring out customers' constraints, helping them get their answers. It's a pretty exciting time, I think. We've raised the floor. You know, products like DBT have made transformation easier. Products like Snowflake have made storing data and running queries easier. BI tools are getting better. I think we can really focus more on kind of those end-to-end solutions, you know, and really helping these companies grow a little faster. And then the company, again, the companies I'm interested in helping grow are the ones that are delivering some kind of social good back to society. I guess that with accessibility to those tools you mentioned, focus really on, on working with specific scientific data, right? And then bring that deep subject matter expert in, into the problem. So Gordon, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment. And we can ask you three rapid fire questions and you can give the answers to the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data engineering slash business intelligence universe whose work you admire. So three people that come to mind are uh, Tristan Handy over at Fishtown Analytics, who's one of the founders and a really powerful, pragmatic voice in the world of analytics and data warehousing. People probably know him because he's one of the people behind DBT, right? Mm-hmm. Super, super popular product for doing transformations and modeling data. If you haven't read Tristan's posts, I highly recommend it. He's a great writer. He's, he's a great engineer and he's got a crystal ball. It's both worth uh, reading and thinking about what he writes. Michael Kaminsky is out there. He's the one who wrote the famous uh, analytics engineering post. He's a really, really interesting guy. I first met him at a Looker conference in New York, and I think it was 2016. He was like, I won't go into all the details, but he was doing a presentation on how to do data science within Looker. And it was really, no one else was doing it the way he was doing it, you know? And so it was very sophisticated and very interesting and very pragmatic. So he's another great writer. Um, and then Bar Moses is a, sort of a new voice in the scene, but she is coined the term data observability. She's over a founder over at Monte Carlo. And she's focused on that problem of like, how do we make sure our data is safe to use? Lately, it seems like I, every time I turn around, I, I run into her again. I've met her personally a couple of times. She's great. She's warm. She's generous. She would give you her, her time, but, she, and she's got a great mission. So I, w- I would seek her out as well. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those names. Definitely uh, people love to check it out. Number two, name one book that you'd recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. 
<laughs> this is, you know, I have it. So I have a collection of business books, of course, sitting on my desk, like everyone else does. And, you know, my, my habit is I tend to read the back cover and then the first half, the first chapter, and I never go any further because I, I feel like I get the concept, right. And because my attention span is really short, but I would recommend start with why by Simon Sinek, right. You know, again, go back to why are we doing this? What's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the pain we're trying to relieve? Be purposeful work with intention. And so as an analyst, you know, what area do you want to tackle? What are you curious about? What cause do you care about? You know, and dig into that. Great recommendation. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a tweet to, um, maybe if you don't have Twitter, you can send out like a post on LinkedIn to all the aspiring analytics practitioners. What could you post about? Yeah, that, you know, I'm not really a Twitter user in the sense in terms of posting. I mostly just hit likes and whatnot. But <laughs> if I was going to post something, I would say something like this. Be your own customer. Find something you really care about, whether it be the, the economy, the environment, whether it be civic engagement, right? Something you want to make better. Ask yourself what insight is missing that is needed to drive better outcomes, you know? And then who needs those outcomes, right? Who do you need to persuade? And then try to solve the problem yourself because, you know, having, everyone has ideas and everyone can talk about planes, right? But you're not really making a difference until you try to actually try to build solutions. So if you want to influence local elections, right? And or if you want, you know, you might want to build a dashboard that communicates, you know, progress against various issues within your community, right? Well, who's going to look at that dashboard? How are they going to access it? What are your data sources? Where do you find civic data, right? These are all practical problems and you won't understand how to build a solution until you actually try. So be your own customer. Yeah, I totally agree. And then so your own needs, you know, and even in enterprise scale, like eat your own dog food is a good way to understand and then validate the product market fit, for example. Yeah, Gordon, I really enjoy our conversation and learn about your foray into the web database, how you get into consulting, some of the initial initiatives that you're leading on uh, data warehousing and BI and data engineering at various company at different size and scale. Uh, some of your thought leadership content and thoughts on different pillars of data analytics platform, how to be a good manager and the landscape of current data warehousing and BI. So I'll be sure to include all the, this information in, into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and, and reach out and learn more about some of your work. If they're interested, I really appreciate it and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, James. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, share my viewpoint. I really enjoyed this. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.